Welcome to Art from the Outside, a podcast for anyone who wants an outside-in look at the art world. I'm Amitha Raman. And I'm Will Pally. And each episode, we're talking to the people who inspire us to help unravel the arts. So, Amitha, this is so exciting. I can't believe that we are starting episode one of Art from the Outside. I know, it's so exciting. I feel like this has been sort of a passion project that's lived in our heads for a while now. Oh, absolutely. I remember very vividly the first time that we met at MoMA and I was just really struck. Who is that badass, super articulate, incredibly elegant, very brilliant person that is so curious and asking all of these great questions. And I was like, must meet her, must be friends with her. Yeah, actually, I do really remember the story. I don't remember exactly which curatorial walkthrough it was, but it was, it was. I think maybe it was Adrian Piper. I think we already knew each other then. I think it was the... It was at MoMA, for sure, because I got you in the elevator. It was at MoMA, but there was this one walkthrough, and it was maybe Degas' mm, drawings yes, yes. or prints. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, that was it. And I remember the thing that I learned from that walkthrough just like nerd out a little bit it was the first time i ever thought about the fact that that was the time that the train and or maybe the train and the bicycle were invented so the world started looking so different and so that's why you see this kind of momentum or yeah Yeah, exactly blurred image Um, kind of yeah yes yeah um so i remember that it must have been like a tuesday I can't remember. I think I feel like it was cold for sure at that time. It was one evening in New York. Yeah. And also, I didn't know you were gay at that point. I was like, ooh, that voice so cute. And then I was like, okay. <laughs> I introduced myself and I was like, okay. Girl, you had like, you were practically fiance at that time. Also, that I'm like, girl, true. you blind. Anyone who sees me and doesn't know I'm a big homo is like. I mean, okay. Fair point. What's that phrase? Like, bitch, you blind. Uh, You know, in the art world and in the creative world, there's so many times where I think I just assume someone's gay and then they're like, oh, I'm going to like bring my partner to dinner. And then like they show up with like a woman and I'm like, is this your partner? Like business partner? And they're like, no, my wife. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, it's also so funny starting this podcast because you and I are both such big consumers of podcasts in general, but especially art podcasts. But like one of the things that's missing from a lot of the art podcasts that we listen to is a more accessible, fun, non-academic approach to the guests that they're featuring. I agree. Yeah, I remember like it's been so interesting as I continue to learn about the arts. I'm like, you know what? I just want an approachable take that isn't dumbed down. And an approachable take that isn't afraid to ask intelligent questions. And I think that for me was really, really important. And we are relatively young compared to a lot of the podcasts out there. One of the things I'm hoping we achieve with this project is that we, you know, we've spoken about this, right? That like, we're both almost like researchers by trade, right? You know, I work in marketing, you know, at Google, you worked in marketing at, at MasterCard, at at eBay, at WeWork. And I think it's fun to like take that kind of 
maybe I guess rigor and try and apply, you know, employ that when we talk to these brilliant minds. I mean, it's been so fun to try and, and do like really thoughtful research before we talk to some of our guests. Or all of our guests. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely, I'm not like, uh, I'm not going to like read anything no, about this person. No, and that's what's so funny is like even the guests that we know as personal friends, I've never really interviewed them in this context. So even though I know my, you know, a friend of mine is a talented artist, having to research them in this rigorous process and like use that same objective process every time, I'm learning new things about my friends that I didn't even know about their practice. And um, yes. it's been such a joy. And I think, you know, what, what's so interesting was when we look at the art world, the voices that are so often foregrounded or the voices that are heard the loudest are often straight, cisgendered white men. And for me as a queer person, I thought it was really important for me personally to really celebrate voices that don't get that kind of coverage. Yeah. And similarly, I mean, being a woman of color, being half Indian, half Korean, and especially from, you know, the heartland of America, Kansas City, like a small town outside of Kansas City, Missouri, I think that it's a very different lens that I have, especially, you know, growing up in Missouri and an immigrant family where, you know, they weren't art collectors. Uh, We went to art museums, but really it wasn't until I moved to New York and started taking classes at the MoMA that I really uh, started to become really engaged and learning and and more passionate. And so I guess one thing I hope that comes through is that no matter what time you start engaging with the arts, you it's anyone can learn um, and anyone can get really, really entrenched in it, um, even if you don't necessarily have that background. Yeah, it's it's funny. And I think your point about learning, there are so many people that we continue to learn from. And so over the upcoming episodes, we are really talking to people from many different parts of the art world, from obviously gallerists to artists, curators, um, collectors, and hopefully even some um, writers at some point, because everyone plays a, a very different role. And it's so fascinating to understand what role they play and hear that different perspective. It's also, especially because we're both from a marketing background, it's been so much fun to come up with the branding and the marketing behind our podcast. And one of the exciting things is we finally came up with a name, you know, Art From The Outside, which I think really perfectly captures the fact that, you know, neither of us are art world professionals, um, but we really are trying to get an in-depth look in through our hopefully insightful questions. Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey and I feel very fortunate to have had and continue to have such a brilliant creative mind for a partner. So when we were thinking about the name, when we arrived at Art From The Outside, it's like we are both, you know, we're not art world professionals. We don't have and never will claim to have the degree of insider knowledge or expertise that anyone else has. and. So I guess part of this project is using questions to learn and and offer a perspective or a look at the art world from the view of someone who isn't a professional or an insider. Yeah. And just the fact that, you know, I think that we're both very humble and very honest with ourselves and a little bit self-deprecating in the fact that, you know, we're just two art nerds who 
are pretty good at research and are able to somehow convince some of these incredibly talented art world professionals to share their time with us and their wisdom. And, you know, it's a privilege every time. Even though we've recorded this episode a couple of days after George Floyd's murder and before the huge groundswell of protests, sadly, a lot of the conversation is still very relevant because we talk about a lot of the injustices that Black Americans are still fighting against today and continue to fight against. This episode, I'm unusually excited about our guest, as she's someone that we've both admired, I might even say fangirled over for quite some time. It's an immense privilege to welcome the formidable Dr. Zoe Whitley. Oh, hi. Zoe is the director of London's Chisholm Hill Gallery, which she joined earlier this year. Prior to that, she's been a curator at the Haywood Gallery, the Tate, the Victorian Albert Museum, and the Studio Museum in New York. Many of us also likely know her as the co-curator of the widely acclaimed Soul of a Nation exhibition at the Tate Modern from 2017. And it actually continues to travel here in the United States, um, currently at the De Young Museum in San Francisco. Last year, Zoe also curated the lyrical Kathy Wilkes exhibition at the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. And that was actually where I was lucky enough to get to spend time with Zoe. And it was just a total blast. So we are so, so happy to have you here with us today. Welcome, Zoe. Oh, thank you. What an introduction. Thank you very much, Will and Amitha, for having me. Honestly, the introduction, I was like, oh, got to cut this. It's getting too long. Like, <laughs> I'm just being too effusive. Need to stop. Uh. So there's, you know, words could have gone on. You can do, yeah, you can fast forward. We do the short version, <laughs> you know. The too long didn't read intro. It's all good. Well, again, welcome, Zoe. Um, how are you doing today? Where are you currently? I am in my box room. I've had to convert the very small bedroom in our in our flat um, <laughs> into my office. So even though I was named the new director of Chisholm Hale. The public announcement was made in January, but I didn't actually take up post until 30th of March. So I've been directing uh, a really phenomenal team and working on the forward program from my house under quarantine like everybody else. Wow, and what has that been like? Is, I'm, I'm assuming this is the first time that you've ever been onboarding on a new job from a remote location. What, what has yeah. that been like? What, have, what are the challenges? I mean, the challenges are many, but I think the the great leveler here is that everyone's in the same situation. So it's not like I have tonsillitis and am waiting to... I had to once work on uh, a project with Matt Collishaw in the kind of cupola of the V&A and I had chicken pox. So oh, no. um, it's oh my not, God. yeah, as a grown up, it's awful. I wouldn't wish it on my, my worst enemy, but all that to say that in that circumstance, everything else is normal and you're the outlier. And I think that the collective strangeness and trauma and tragedy for, you know, many people, and I count myself fortunate among people who are having to deal with this circumstance in some really dire straits. There's been a lot of understanding for just trying to to get the job done as, as best we can, I think, because I'm, 
you know, a people person and enjoy that physical contact. It's not, it's not the start that I imagined, but, you know, it's one of those absurd things. Like if you went for a job interview and they gave you a hypothetical scenario and that's the one that they presented, <laughs> you would just think, hmm, I don't know if I even want this job. That's ridiculous. So I think that, again, yeah, the shared ridiculousness of our situation uh, makes it slightly better. Um, that and I have a puppy. I have a puppy named Missy Elliott. So between my husband no. and my daughter and my puppy, um, we, we're doing okay. Certainly it would be wrong of me to complain about anything. It's funny what you describe about, you know, starting this role during COVID. I think there's both the sort of professional challenges of doing that, but then also, I guess, you know, the personal challenges. It's interesting. I was really struck by what you mentioned about it being sort of the great leveler. You know, I suddenly for me, emotionally, I will say that, you know, there are these moments where you can feel low or high. And the one thing that is constant is that this experience of lockdown or locked out is, is so universal and that can become really a a tool i think or something to bear in mind i think it is because everything there's been like a forced quit on everything so i think it's it's definitely changed the way i've worked those of us who are privileged enough to travel regularly for work you know you sometimes wish that the the schedule would slow down and that maybe you didn't but you're you don't do anything to change the scenario, you know, you're still getting up and going to the airport or even being mindful of things like the environmental toll of mm. air travel. Um, we acknowledge it verbally, but our actions are still doing something else. It's it's interesting. I was listening to an interview with Philip Tanari, who is the um, director of the UCCA Center yeah, um, in, in, in Beijing. Beijing. And he was mentioning that... Um, they have taken to doing openings via Zoom. I believe he was talking about their um, satellite location, um, which is in a sort of seaside or vacation town um, near Beijing. And um, they decided to proceed with the opening of an exhibition, but it was all done uh, virtually and it was really just for sort of friends and press. And it made me laugh, but also admire his ingenuity for figuring out a way to operate, figuring out a way to continue his mission um, while also navigating the realities or constraints of social distancing and, and lockdown and all of what accompanies COVID. I think that museums um, and curators have thought about you know, ways to kind of bring an exhibition to a wider audience that can't physically be present. I know, Zoe, you've talked a lot about how to bring the experience of the Venice Biennale to a wider audience, but I think that this is finally the event that's kind of forcing people to pursue those in a bigger way. For sure. And I think just rethinking everything, because knowing that one of the fundamental strategic goals, you know, of trying to have as many people as possible access something, um, and even having metrics that relate to your success or, you know, funding on, on those bases, how many people you can attract, knowing that for the good of one another, we can't gather um, in those numbers anymore, I think is going to lead to some really productive thinking about deep work rather than broad work. 
and maybe doing yeah. uh, serving a smaller audience more meaningfully, serving fewer people better. And what that looks like, we don't know yet. But I think that particularly those of us who have found ways to be resourceful um, and to exhibit ingenuity in the face of very stringent uh, public funding cuts to the arts um, have always found ways to do more and more with less and less. And I do think that there's a kind of a reckoning now where so many people are really doubling down on what their, their mission is. A lot of things that weren't previously talked about, like the emotional labor that goes into the work that we do, um, the kind of less quantifiable aspects of what it means to work with an artist and believe in them, the the super quantifiable things like artists need money to live, uh, <laughs> that those those things all become so important right now. And we're talking about them in real ways. And I think also in ways that are unvarnished because your cat runs across the keyboard or, you know, you have to stop at noon because your kid needs lunch and you need to make sure that they've done their homework and aren't just watching Disney Plus. Or maybe that's just in my house. Um, but, um, but all of these things, everybody's negotiating a new normal. Um, and yeah, in very, very varying degrees of comfort and privilege. So trying to figure out how to do that as honestly as possible. Possibly, I'm so impressed that you speak to that with such sort of aplomb and also calmness when, you know, <laughs> you... Depends you, on the you, day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you've um, stepped into this role. You are now leading a team. And I'm sure some of the team you've barely met face to face. And to take on this leadership position, to mobilize, to motivate all of these talented individuals, I'm sure. But maybe, you know, you've, you've never even shook hands with them. You can't give them a hug. That's a unique challenge. So brava to you. Oh, well, thanks. I think it's, you know, I, again, I think it's something that so many of us are going through right now. And I've had some very good conversations with um, Elise Gonzalez at Ruby City, who's in uh, a similar circumstance as a new director at a, a really wonderful art space. And so I think talking about it is really helpful. And then, like we were joking about before, I do try to prepare. So I've never been happier that, like, my greedy love of carbs, um, one of the things that I did in <laughs> Feb was to take a lot of croissants into the office. And so, and then very sweetly, oh. one of the members of the team had also brought in uh, cinnamon buns. So we just had, like, a carb fest and a very informal chat. But I really cherish that one moment because I was expecting that to be something that happened on a regular basis. You joined Chisholm earlier this year, and, you know, it has an incredibly strong reputation in history. I mean, it's sort of been the bell, a bellwether for many artists who have really gone on to become incredibly acclaimed, um, sure. even just using the Turner Prize as a, as a sort of litmus test, for instance. I mean, uh, exhibiting the works of Anthea Hamilton, Helen Martin, Josephine Pride, Lawrence Abduhamdan. Lubaina Himid, yeah. Yeah, 
Exactly. Um, but for listeners outside the UK who might not be as familiar with the Chisholm Hale Gallery, can you tell us a little bit about it and, and how it fits into London's unique art scene? So um, Chisholm Hale Gallery is in London's East End, right by the edge of Victoria Park. And from its very foundation, it's been an artist's art gallery. And by that, I mean it was literally founded by artists uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, yeah, so in a former veneer factory uh, on Chisholm Hale Road, so in a residential neighborhood. And we share under one roof, we have uh, Chisholm Hale Art Studios, Chisholm Hale Dance Space, and the gallery. And they are three separate entities, um, all located on Chisholm Hale Road. And to your point about the way that we work and this belief in artists, I think that what's been particularly special about the ethos throughout is that there hasn't been a chasing of the zeitgeist or who will be the next big thing, but effectively the belief in artists and wanting to nurture their ambitious ideas and allowing them the space and the freedom to work in a way where we start from a place of yes rather than no. That's one of the first conversations I had with our um, curator, Ellen Gregg, who's really phenomenal. And I thought, you know, that's a wonderful thing to be to be open to, that you're not starting from a how come, you're starting from why not. Um, or do we and- have the budget for that? As yeah. someone who came from institutions, yeah. Well, I think, well, I mean, that that's still going to be an issue, but that's my job. Then I yeah. have to, to fundraise for it and believe in the project and help other people believe in it as well. Um, but we think in the 1980s, Rashid Areen curated um, a seminal exhibition called Essential Black Art. Um, Sonia Boyce wow. was a part of that. Sonia Boyce will be the next artist representing Venice uh, in now 2022. Uh, Mana Hatoum was part of that uh, in the 1990s. I think that kind of put Chisholm Hale on the proverbial art map internationally because it's That's where incredible. the first major solo exhibitions happened for uh, Cornelia Parker, Pipilotti Rist, uh, Gillian Waring, Wolfgang Tillmans, let's see, Rachel Wright-Reed, there's so many, Thomas Hirschhorn, uh, and then Oh, since, wow. Yeah, and wow. even since the 2000s, um, Hito Sterl, um, Lynette Yadimboachi had a major show there. Um, Helen, who you mentioned, who's on our board, um, and also Paul Mahecki, um, Camille Alro, um, Lawrence Abu Hamdan, who you mentioned was one of the four-way winners of the of the last Turner Prize, uh, Mariah Icorn, uh, Ed Atkins. Uh, the list just goes on and on. It's kind of yeah. amazing. I mean, it really... It's so funny as I was looking through the sort of previous exhibitions and thinking about what I've seen, I was just, it's really, really remarkable. I mean, there's a, I don't think the word prescient is right, but the Chisholm Hill really has been this, I suppose, canary in the coal mine of, of figuring out the, you know, or identifying what's, what's most meaningful. Well, I think that a lot of that just comes back to artists. If you create a place where artists feel welcome, one of the things that's really beautiful to see is that for um, a relatively recent exhibition like Emma Abbasi-Ocon's, Anthea Hamilton came and saw that show and then talked about it in the press because of the way it made her feel. And more often than not, um, our commissions are sort of... uh, 
anti-Instagrammable moments. So there's <laughs> there's there's not I necessarily a big shiny thing to look at. Um, you know, even with Pipiloti wrists installation, you know, unless you have someone sitting in the outside furniture, you wouldn't even get a sense of what that environment was like from the stills. Um, and so I think the fact that we care about not only the artists who we've worked with in the past, but then in the artists' networks and a whole community of artists who then support one another, I think that's what then creates uh, this ongoing continuity and creates a kind of a genuineness of approach where one isn't seeking, as I said, like the next new thing or mm. what haven't we done before, but the constant studio visits, the talking, you know, it's not always about an outcome because we only have so many slots to commission, but that doesn't mean we can't have meaningful engagement with artists in other ways. Um, That's so important. Have, yeah. So given Chisholm Hill's um, legacy in breaking these emerging artists or giving a lot of artists their big break, how do you think about expanding the scope to champion more mid-career artists? Because I think, you know, as a sector, you've said as well, there's yeah. a lot of attention on like the younger artists or like the artists that are established towards the end of their career. I think that the, the organization has always done that. You know, Lubaina Himid and I have had a lot of talk about this because of course she won the Turner Prize. She had a first major solo show at Chisholm Hale, but in the 1980s, you know, there's there's a generation yeah. between when that happened. I think a story can look a lot more linear uh, on paper or in someone's very storied CV. But actually, in terms of a mission, we're interested in working with artists at a pivotal moment in their career. Um, and that doesn't only happen when you're fresh out of art college in your early 20s. You know, it also happens in your 30s and 40s. And even artists we have coming up um, and show that will be now putting on next year um, by Abbas Akavan is testament to that. And I think the, the way that we think about who we work with and at what stage in their career is something that can continue to be expansive. But I think actually the program itself over the past, you know, 34 years does testify to like a broader range of, you know, ages than we perhaps tend to summarize it. But I think that that's, that's really important because an artist is an artist all their lives and these moments that they have um, may need to come at different points. I'd love to sort of turn the mirror when it comes to success and, and ask you, I mean, you know, you, you are now very, have been, but continue to be very, very successful. I mean, it's no small feat to build what you did at the Tate, to sort of move on to the Haywood Gallery, to present an incredible presentation at Venice, and now to run the Chisholm Hale Gallery. I mean, I think, you know, it's fair to say that you also are very successful, and that's one of the reasons, or one of many reasons we we admire you so much. Oh, I guess I'd, I'd I love just to understand. Too <laughs> <laughs> well, one, it doesn't show in terms of uh. you personally, but two, it absolutely, you know, it looks seamless but also uh -huh. the out you're killing it right the uh -huh. output or outcome is uh -huh. it is it's pretty good i think we've seen that all the people we've spoken to have had very different paths to the that led them to the arts and you know i know or i understand that you grew up in la and and it's funny we've spoken about lubaina himid who i know is very very important to you um and it's funny how artists have always from what i understand played a, a 
vital role in, in you and your personal experiences. You know, for instance, you grew up very close to where Betty Saar lives. And I know your mother was an artist, right? Yeah, she was. But, you know, her whole career, you know, to make a living was so always someone who was interested in the arts and who introduced me to the arts. And she studied art with David Driscoll at the University oh, of Maryland. Wow. Um, but, you know, by profession, um, managed doctor's offices her whole career. And so I think there's a sense coming from the background I did that, you know, art is something, culture is important, you know, whether it's music or um, whatever, but that it wasn't necessarily a career path that was going to be viable. Um, and so, yeah, I often say that the thing I'm proudest of is that I've proved to my grandfather that I could do something with an art history degree. And Zoe, what was it that prompted you to apply to the Chisholm role in the first place? Um, yeah, there were six different people encouraged me to apply for the Chisholm role that don't even necessarily know one another um, in the arts. So I had to start asking myself what I was afraid of and that maybe I should just try, but it's making excuses. But I mean, a lot of times, even though it's really, really hard work, I really, I do enjoy it. I mean, that's why I do it. So there's a way to kind of yeah. push yourself and to also, I think, just like an almost childlike enthusiasm to be like, oh my gosh, this work is so great. I want other people to know about this. And I think, and, and also like to your point, you know, with, with Soul of a Nation, you know, I co-curated that with Mark Godfrey, um, a project that I really loved working on at Studio Museum in Harlem. Thelma gave me the opportunity to be guest curator there with Naima Keith, who's a close friend of oh, mine. Wow. And we just... And it was really enjoyable, like the process of coming up with the ideas of making it happen and then seeing how people respond to it is something that, yeah, I really, I enjoy it a lot. And I think knowing that it's done because you want people to engage with it, um, to have something to say about it, is really super important, you know, right after, or it's actually during um the shadows took shape that Martine Sims released, um, you know, her wonderful film and, you know, statement about we're not aliens. And I think that that really pushed oh, the cool. discourse further. Yep. And then we see how, you know, something like that ends up being part of, you know, one of AJ's films and these ways of, you know, even if it's just this tiny thing, the way that it can contribute to something bigger um, is something that, that feels really, yeah, is really, really important. I'm curious, how do your, how, how old are your, your children? Because I was going to say, how uh, do, do they look up to their mom and just, they oh. must love you. They must be <laughs> oh. very proud of you. Not, not for this. I think that's the thing because like those are closest to me aren't arty people. Like mm. I have my feet kind of very firmly on the ground. You know, I get back from a work trip when we were flying constantly and you know my husband would be like oh can you put the bins out or you know there's no kind of <laughs> I don't know there's no it's just regular I don't know there's I filmed my daughter when we were in Venice because she was getting yeah incredibly fed up with the amount of people who were coming up for me to talk to or that I was stopping to talk to 
And yeah, in this very, very suspicious way. So that, oh, I should say, yeah. I only have one child, but I talk about her so much. I think people think I have like 10 kids, but <laughs> just one daughter. Um, but she, she looked at me very suspiciously and she said, are you famous? You're not famous. Why is everybody talking to you? Why do people know what your name is? And oh I was saying, wow. well, and I told her, I said, it's kind, I said, you know, it's, it's more Love that. It's really exciting, but this is basically like a work conference. So, you know, if you work for an air conditioning company and you have a work conference at a hotel in Las Vegas, a lot of people that I work with in lots of different contexts all come together for Venice because people are here from all around the world. But yeah, then she, she'll see someone she knows, like Anthea, and then say like, oh, I really like your earrings. But, you know, it's not, she doesn't no think deal. like this person is an art, you know, she's having, yeah. So she had um, breakfast with Sable Elise Smith and really enjoyed that. Oh, and they were wow. just talking about bacon and a collector was saying to Wait, me not bacon, that long is ago. Wait, bacon like bacon the eat? You eat yeah, or, like, sorry, or bacon so, the artist? Sorry, oh yeah, you're right. No, like actual pig's bacon. I wasn't even thinking of Francis Bacon. So, sorry, vegans. Um, no, and a collector was saying, oh, do you know Sable Lily Smith? And I was like, weirdly, she's friends with my daughter. <laughs> like, wow. But we were just talking about like normal stuff. From afar, I, not to totally fan out on you, but from afar, it's like we were both fanning out before this interview. Like oh. we admire all of your accomplishments and so many major milestones that you've accomplished all you know before even the age of forty. Um, but I think one of the other things that I really admire about you is that you're very thoughtful about always calling out the mentors that have kind of helped you along the way. I know you've um, in interviews you often talk about the people who were supervising your internship at LACMA or yeah. um, your supervisor Sharon and Kay. You were, yeah, uh, doing amazing. your PhD. Yeah. So can you speak to maybe the role that mentors have played in helping you navigate the stellar career? Because, you know, from the outside, I think that people sometimes have an impression of the art world being this cold, unfriendly place. And I was actually yeah. that was very struck by the fact that you always call out these people. I guess I don't know. This is like a very like black Pollyanna thing to say, but I guess I've always been fortunate in that some of like what you put out in the world, you get back. And I don't know, a lot of times I'm like really excited to meet somebody or genuinely interested in what they have to say. And I think people just pick up on that. Um, I was having a conversation with an artist about that, that I think there can be a kind of mistrust of of sincerity or enthusiasm or anything that someone might mistake as earnestness. And I think for so long, that same thing, Trevor Schoonmacher actually, um, the, the new director of uh, the Nasher Museum at Duke University, he curated the prospect for Triennial in New Orleans. And um, I felt really privileged that he asked me to be part of his kind of director's council and to, you know, talk to him through some of his ideas. And again, like, I feel like I have to just like give credit where it's due because he said this, but it made so much sense. He was saying, well, when we think through artists, like keep in mind, you know, because you know me, that I'm more interested in warm engagement than cool detachment. And I think in the oh, contemporary wow. art world, mm -hmm. that sense of like this legacy of of modernism, um, this kind of like very cerebral theory of not wanting to to unpack something or make it accessible, to not want to talk about feelings or to not admit the limits of your knowledge. It's just, it's literally not how I was raised. 
you operate from on a on a foundation of deep respect, which I think can be missing sometimes in the art world. And <laughs> it's that's a nice euphemism, Will. You put that very, very delicately. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, the British in me. I'm, uh, when I'm even more articulate, I can slang euphemisms incredibly well. So um, good. Today, not so much. But yeah, I think that's really rare or certainly noteworthy and, and something that I think both Amitha and I really admire about you, you oh, know, that's... in a... Yeah, yeah, you're very I mean, you're very passionate about making art and museums very accessible to a broader audience. I, I love that you often when you're speaking to students, you've said, you know, it's not curating is not like being Charlotte on Sex in the City. Yeah. You don't just I know, say it's like such oh, a dated reference <laughs> now. Let's go I need get a cosmos. New one. Yeah, no, yeah. but that's great. It I, I read it's that. <laughs> I literally read that and laughed out loud because uh. I think that, yeah, I mean, as a kid growing up in Kansas City, Missouri, very far from the New York art world, that was the impression that I have. Like, oh, that's what it's about. And that also kind of limited my my ideas about, you know, whether I could pursue art as a career. And I imagine, you know, that For probably sure. is not <laughs> just my experience. Well, one of my, my best friend from my time at the V&A, who lives in Minnesota, um, she was getting her hair cut once. And so this would have been like, let's say maybe 2002. And she was asked by the hairdresser, like, what what her job was. And she said, oh, you know, I'm, assistant, I'm an assistant curator at the V&A. And the person said like, oh, that must be so boring. Like, don't you get tired of sitting on that stool all day? So the only reference wow. point oh, wow. that the hairdresser had was, you know, our front of house staff that's there kind of, you know, invigilating in the galleries. And, you know. That's, that's it, so messed up that <laughs> the art world can be so opaque. You know, that it can feel so inaccessible and so... I think opaque. completely. And I think until really the last maybe 15 years, curator wasn't a word that everybody knew or it wasn't even seen as like an aspirational job. You know, maybe mm. if you were working, you were like a very particular kind of person who enjoyed research or enjoyed objects, maybe enjoyed ideas and exhibition making to a lesser degree. But, you know, a lot of the curating that at least I was aware of when I was starting in the field meant that, you know, what you were hoping for was a job in a museum and you'd kind of work your way up and that, you know, you wouldn't have your name on things. Maybe if you did really well, you'd get your name on an exhibition catalog or an essay. But, you know, that's not why you were doing it. And I think that curating has become a far more visible profession but I think equally one that, yeah, looks incredibly shiny on the surface, but maybe, you know, there's there's still a lot of misunderstanding about like all the work that's involved and how, yeah, not shiny. And I would also add, obviously I'm not a curator, but it's also very important to call out that still, you know, curating is burdened as a profession by the legacy of unpaid internships, for instance. And that is or can be such a barrier. So it's very exciting or heartening to see institutions like MoMA really committing to paid internships or paid positions. And obviously not still not anyone can do it. There's a whole weeks worth of seminars about, you know, the structural barriers to becoming a curator. But certainly it's exciting to see 
steps being made. And I guess the, the National para- Museums in the UK have made that same pledge. So That's there are amazing. no kind of unpaid internships. And I know that Arts Council England has been a big part of kind of driving a way of thinking about ways to do what's necessary to reduce uh, the many, many barriers to to accessing this type of work or even in the first instance to knowing this type of work exists. One of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of yours is I experienced, I was lucky enough to experience Soul of the Nation twice, at first at the Tate Modern and then again at the Brooklyn Museum. It's one of my all-time favorite exhibitions that I've ever experienced. It's very moving. Um, and oh. Oh, oh, there, you have the catalog. <laughs> Will's holding up the, the U.S. edition of the catalog. Um, yeah, and as an American experiencing the uh, show in London, it, I was really interested in kind of just observing the other museum visitors and seeing how they were responding to the narratives, given it was mostly a British and international audience. So I'm curious about your personal experience as an American curator organizing the show for a British museum, um, how you thought about contextualizing some of those narratives for that audience. That's a good question, and it's one that comes up a lot, particularly in an American context. Um, Mm. With any U.S. press that Mark or I did, there was this, um, that was always the kind of first question, sort of like, but you're British. And then we'd kind of say like, not British. Um, but, um, you know, how is, how is there even an interest in this? And the simple answer, um, and I know it seems like deceptively simple, is that we started with the artwork. So being mindful that of the, the geographical representation of Tate's very impressive uh, exhibition history on the Bankside site since 2000, the largest proportion of artists had been telling a kind of post-war American art history. And yet none of the artists who were in Soul of a Nation had been part of any of those narratives. And starting with Tate's collection, there was actually only a couple of examples that were this sort of... um, exceptions to the rule that proved that as well. So there's a a Sam Gillian Drake painting from uh, the early 1970s. I think it might be 1973, but I can't remember, um, in the collection that had been given by a Jewish collector. And Mark and I had been looking at um, the number of Jewish organizations that had supported African-American arts exhibitions or who collected the work at kind of key moments in artists. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting um, cultural crossovers and points of confluence and solidarity. And looking at Frank Bowling as this wonderful connector, as a British artist who was awarded the silver medal to David Hockney's gold medal for his year graduating painting from the Royal College of Art. And yet, while his fellow classmates, of course, Hockney among them, um, but many others were kind of heralding this new energy uh, in Uh, the British art scene, Uh, and yet he was rejected show after show, um, you know, being told that Britain wasn't ready for a kind of a talented artist of colour. So the short answer is, yeah, it started with the art. So it wasn't this kind of like, wouldn't it be wild if, you know, we take this (laughs) other view. Um, And I actually think that one of the things that potentially opened some doors is where artists had perhaps not had 
positive experiences historically with certain American institutions, emailing out of the blue. I don't know how many artists I disappointed when I first showed up. And they were like, wait, you're not British. I was like, I know. Because <laughs> from, the, from the email, they were expecting, you know, uh, a young British woman to arrive. And so disappointing left and right. No, The irony, was... though, is that you are in many regards British at this point. I, I mean, how so, long have yeah. you been in the UK for? Since 2001. So it's... And I've, the bulk I've... of your education was completed in the UK yeah, too. We're, so we're on, I'm literally almost at the tipping point when I will have spent, yeah, half my <laughs> half my life here. So yeah, it's wow. it's coming up soon. And what an amazing experience to be able to spend time with legends like Betty Sarr and all of these living oh, artists. So that, good. Yeah. Um and I can imagine that could also be maybe like challenging as a curator because these are not people who have passed away a long time ago. They can actually challenge what you're saying about their work oh, or the yeah. way you're trying to contextualize oh, they it. Do. That's the whole point. <laughs> I mean, that that makes the show better. Um, yeah, I think that's really, yeah, I've had like great conversations with Oscar Murillo about, because he was saying like, I can't imagine Frank Bowling would want to be in a show like this. You know, this is exactly. And I was like, you're right on the surface, but Frank and I talk all the time because actually what we're doing in presenting this is to say like, this is, a story, not the story. And also part of the story is how traditionally the invitation would be something that would be pigeonholing rather than trying to say, this is what we're trying to do with this work. Or um, And so, yeah, there were a lot of great conversations about that. And I think lots of, um, lots of productive conundrums as well. So it's not about either or, it's about both and. And I think having approached it in that way, was really incredibly productive. So yeah, I think I don't yeah, I don't think there'll ever be another show like that in my life. So but I'm still I'm still very close to everybody and I talk to them a lot. So special that you were able to um celebrate that moment with artists like Emma Amos and Jack Whitten um, while they were you know towards the end of the career. And and certainly I mean reintroduced their work or maybe introduced their work for the first time to a lot of American museum visitors that might not have been... And British um, ones, too. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, Will held the catalogue up. And we we said that in the introduction, that this was, you know, that's the thing with a group show, you know, that any one of the artists in that show deserves solo shows as well. And we'd love to see more. Absolutely. So it's, it's really brilliant that, you know, Thomas Lacks is doing an exhibition about just above Midtown at, yeah, at so MoMA or... Um, or Betty Saar at MoMA, which Will and I saw. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was a great show. And then Betty had um, a show at LACMA. And um, obviously before, and I think that's the thing, that there are these, these ways of, of looking at the long arc of an artist's career. So I think that, yeah, I hope we were able to contribute something. I mean, whether or not these other projects were in progress at the time, it certainly seems like the exhibition really ignited a shift in the conversation. I mean, you know, I I was so thrilled because, um, you know, the, among others, Blackness at MoMA book um, arrived the other day. Darby English's book, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, you know, we have Betty Saar, we have, you know, obviously Charles White, a lot of these exhibitions of artists um, included in Soul of a Nation seem to have happened after um, the Soul of a Nation exhibition. So whether or not it directly prompted that, it certainly seems like it was one of the keystone moments or milestones in what is a very 
important shift in in the curatorial discourse. I think, well, thanks. I think I, that is definitely true. I mean, Hans Ulrich Obrist said that, you know, it was the show that introduced him to Faith Ringgold's work. So I think that, oh, wow. again, there are a lot of artists who were perhaps known within a culturally specific context or within, you know, one context, but not, again, they perhaps hadn't been taught in the curriculum when people were studying artists or they weren't on the list of studios that people are going to visit as part of their regular trips to New York or LA or or elsewhere and so yeah i definitely think that that it did it did something i did want to say you you mentioned faith in gold and it's so interesting right that in um the moma reinstall faith in gold that you know is with was, les demoiselles yeah. exactly which is just you know, I think very, very telling. Um, mm. Since Soul of a Nation opened, right, it remains phenomenally successful. I mean, it's it's traveled to the Brooklyn Museum, to Crystal Bridges, to the Broad. Um, you know, obviously now it's at the De Young Museum. Um, Art News recently listed it as number one of their 10 most important exhibitions at London Tate's Modern. And they had also previously listed it as one of the most important art exhibitions of the 2010s. So I'm curious, right? We spent so much time talking about Soul of a Nation we love it. It's universally accepted that it is this sort of milestone exhibition. Yeah, and I I'm don't curious. even know the person who wrote that article. So Mark and I were WhatsApping about that. I was like, <laughs> wow. And he was like, do you know who that is? I was like, no, it's not. It's not like my aunt or something. <laughs> there's, no, there's no nepotism involved. <laughs> See, it's, it's sort of a, a universal truth. But I guess the oh. question is, you know, how do you personally move forward or build up this incredible success? Yeah, I guess I think this feels so special. And I guess like with the passing of Emma Amos last week um, and and Jack before that and uh, Daniel LaRue Johnson and and a number of others, uh, I just I never take it for granted, you know, like when anybody email if I get an email from Sherry DeCarava or from Buford Smith, I just it means a lot to me personally to know these people and to have an ongoing relationship with them that's not transactional. You know, I didn't like, you know, it's not like I wanted to rinse them for information and that's it. You know, the <laughs> fact that as a result of this project, you know, we still stay in touch um, and I care about what's going on in their lives and, you know, what they're eating for breakfast and, you know, if they're safe and fine. Um, I, the honest truth is I don't I don't think there will be another project quite like this for me. And that's okay because I have it, you know. I'm co-curating a show at the Barnes Foundation with my former Tate colleague Nancy Ierson, who's their deputy director and chief curator. So yeah, so people in Philly will get to, to see from I think a different perspective the life and work of a woodcarver named Elijah Pierce. And Elijah Pierce is, I'm not overstating it, a legend in the kind of folk art and self-taught art communities. But beyond that is probably little known, if not unknown, to most of us who, you know, are interested in art and seeing it every day. But the way that he was able to carve 
such a singular vision of the 20th century in the United States is really special. So that's a really fun project and not an artist that I was able to meet during his lifetime. So in preparing for this interview, I came across one of your past interviews where you were very deliberate about resisting defining contemporary African art. Um, oh, because yeah. And you made the great point that we don't apply those definitions universally. We don't say Alice Neal, the North American painter. But I was wondering, for our listeners, could you speak to why there maybe is such an urge? To, like, why do we want to define contemporary African art? And why should we be pushing it back against that? Um, thanks. That's a really good question. And a big that's like a whole separate podcast. Um, I think that there is a voracious appetite as a business imperative in any number of reasons to um, refresh one's model, um, to borrow, you know, this kind of colonial terms, uh, it's kind of icky, but kind of like to discover something, um, to, to be, to, to want to lay claim to discovering something or to say like, I put this on the map. Um, I have no desire to do that or to be that or to kind of put myself forward as saying that. But I think that, for those who have that kind of inclination or predilection, a, a discovery, in in quotes, of the global south has opened up potentially not only a new uh, potential collector base, but artworks that haven't been seen before. And so on the, on the one hand, you know, I want artists to be championed and to have their work seen, but for that to be done with as much kind of integrity and respect as possible. And so I'm wary when the conversation veers too much toward trying to package anything as a kind of saleable commodity. And I guess that's why I've always been on the kind of, um, you know, nonprofit making sphere of the art world. And this rush to kind of, um, yeah, to name something, to claim it, it's just, it's not necessarily coming from a place that is productive or that's benefiting artists. And so I, it, I definitely tend to push back on things that, that feel reductive or anything that might instrumentalize an artist in some way, then I, I wouldn't want to be like knowingly doing that. I mean, I don't want to unknowingly do it either, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, like, you know. You know, it's an interesting point. I feel like in the U.S. at least, I'm not sure if it's similar in the U.K., but there's definitely on the market side, it feels like this kind of new enthusiasm and interest around, especially like a lot of younger African-American artists. You know, I think of people like Jordan Castile. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's just it's interesting because you think about artists in a show like Soul of the Nation that like it took so long for them to kind of give their due. And then on the flip side, there's young artists coming straight out of Yale who are kind of market stars. Um curious if that trend is similar in the, the UK or um, is it a US phenomenon? I, I think there, there are a lot of different kind of nuances to it here. What I see more here, um, and I just want to do backflips about it, is there a lot, there's an incredibly creative and I think also savvy and entrepreneurial community of Black and queer people of color, um, curating their own shows, uh, creating their own publications, uh, 
Babes comes to mind, who did an alternative black graduate show in 2018 and 2019. Um, and the works in the show were incredibly strong. I mean, Jordan's a fantastic painter. Um, Shaba's work is really, really brilliant. Um, I love what she's doing, um, you know, having started from thinking about those quilted shapes in relation to Sarah Bartman and where she's taken that in a far more personal direction and formally how that's grown and changed is really important to see. And I don't begrudge anyone their success. And, you know, even in Soul of a Nation, there were artists who were commercially successful and did well. So I think that there are a lot of different ways in which this can happen. I guess when, as soon as you said Jordan, what immediately came to mind was... Um, in the New York Times recently, they confused her oh, with um, yes. Amy. And, uh, what? Yeah. yeah. So oh, yeah. I think... I, I, Not I, good, y'all. Not I good. Want Not to, cool. Exactly. <laughs> the New York Times, I, yeah. I basically just, you know, I I want to stand up and clap for anybody who has success because it's it's difficult. And, you know, it's not easily done. So I, I don't begrudge anybody being kind of seen and recognized for their work. And I guess, yeah, I think what, what's been interesting is seeing that institutions are beginning to make some efforts to not repeat the kind of myopia of the past. So changing the way that they collect, even using deaccessioning, which used to be like completely verboten mm -hmm. in like the um, Baltimore museum, museum contests. Yeah. yeah. With, so I think that's that's often um, Chris's model is often the one that's used for being so radical that what can one do um, where, you know, a certain canonical white male artist is very well represented in the collection. What can the sale of one work among, you know, dozens or, you know, more, more than one do to uh, elaborate the depth of a collection to create more relevance and resonance for the community that you're serving. And mm. Mm. I think that that's uh, a really productive way forward. You know, there is this sort of obsessive taxonomization of yeah. not only the world, but certainly within the art world as well. And it's complicated, right? It, it can be both generative, but it can also be very, very reductive. Um, on the market side, thing that I find quite fascinating, like in Freeze, the recent Freeze online viewing rooms, they had their filters, right? And one of the filters was gender. And, you know, so quickly it became like, you know, I want to buy a certain category mm. of artists. Mm -hmm. And that to me was very confusing, especially because, you know, th at that point, it really is the, the commodification of a certain kind of identity. Whereas if you're an institution and you see that there's room for, for greater representation of a certain, you know, individual, that's different. But certainly to be like, I, you know, the commodification of gender as a collector to mm -hmm. me was really fascinating and I think very new, right? I mean, not to go yeah. back to Soul of Nation, but I will just say one thing was <laughs> my key takeaway was it was so and I think you've spoke a lot about this in your interviews. It's like it's easy for us to look back on African-American artists that were making work in that time period. And we might think, oh, they were all kind of 
having the same opinions about those issues. But yeah. I think the show really shows that no, they're individuals that were responding and using different creative strategies to make their point. Yeah, our very polemical kind of working title was Black Enough. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody we talked to, no matter how different they were, especially people we'd spent a lot of time with, which was most of them, um, at some point in the conversation, you know, whether they had been kind of part of the Black Panther Party or, you know, kind of community activist in whatever city, um, at some point it would come up like, well, I was never Black Enough for... Wow. someone else wow. so again this kind of completely shifting barometer of like blackness and who it encompasses and who it leaves out or who chooses actually to not engage with that at all and that's that's not up for us to, to makes say me, you it know, makes me think right now of that. joe biden Oh, Lord, don't, let's not get, is that yeah. our Kiki? Oh, no. Yeah, that's a perfect transition. Ooh, yeah, that, that was, that was, that was wrong. That was bad. I think that is exactly, I guess, some of what we've, what you've been talking around is, I think, any kind of pandering, I don't think people realize sometimes that, like, it's just really hard work to be someone other than who you are. Mm. And, like, more often than not, like, you're going to get found out. And so mm. I don't know who thought that that tested well or that that was going <laughs> to go down well. That I think, I honestly, I don't know if he was badly informed by an advisor, but it had all the the markings of, like, someone wanting to recreate um Clinton's saxophone moment on the Arsenio Hall show. And I'm a, mm -hmm. I stayed up late to watch that <laughs> moment. Like, I remember that. Um, and, you know, the jokes that there used to be um, when, actually, as a nation, it was difficult to conceive that it was possible to have mm -hmm. a black president. Um, you know, even with Shirley Chisholm or Jesse Jackson in the frame, um, that, you know, the jokes about Clinton being the first black president. And so... I don't know. That just looks like a badly market-tested comment, but it was, yeah, it's done him a disservice, that's for sure. You know, mm. so all those kind yeah. of, like, cool Uncle yeah. Joe memes, you know, with Obama. And who knows what was happening in those moments, but the way mm -hmm. they get kind of reduced to, you know, funny gifts and things. But, you know, people are out here dying, getting killed, mm. getting threatened with, you know, yeah, it's just, it's not a joke. We've spoken about some really powerful and urgent topics so far, but I hope you'll allow a little bit of levity in our conversation as well. We allocate time at the end of every episode for a more irreverent section, I suppose, that we call Art Kiki. It's our time to gossip about something in the art world. So what's something that's really been bugging you recently? Or what's something that you're really loving? What's the tea? Oh, good question. Oh, I actually really like to watch TV just to like switch off my brain sometimes. So we've been playing this really fun video game called Telling Lies where it's what kind is of it? narrative driven what so you're on um you're on a laptop so basically you're on somebody's hard drive 
from the NSA. By the way, I thought you were going to say something like, oh, mm. I'm getting really into Call of Duty. And like, I oh, had no. this <laughs> image of you like with the headset. <laughs> like, yes. I'm like, I got you. Yes. Yes. Like playing yeah. against some uh, like 10 year old boy. Yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I, I, will, about, I celebrate yeah. that if you are like amazing. Uh, Keep like, no, it's keystone oh, no, of see, culture. Now, now in the scheme of things, it's going to sound like too on the how intellectual yeah yeah. I don't mean it to no so basically they're these four characters but you're trying to piece together like who's telling the truth who's lying and there's a lot of intrigue where basically this special agent has infiltrated um an environmentalist group like a pretty hardcore one that the FBI is trying to paint as kind of you know domestic terrorists but it's those kind it's one of those fascinating stories like those people who go deep cover and then have like a whole separate family Ooh. so so yeah and you get you get these snippets of this video conversation so it'd be like us talking now but maybe you're only hearing my bit and if i wasn't running my mouth then if there's pauses and then you have to keep going through the files or use search terms to try and find out what the other half of that conversation is and so that wow. basically yeah. like one that sounds dope, but also I'm like, wait, <laughs> isn't good. that just the art world? Oh no! <laughs> it's like that game of telephone. Um, <laughs> so Zoe, both Amitra and I are on the outside of the art world, so we're kind of like these amateur anthropologists, and we're super curious about the people that actually populate the art world. Who do you know that has just the craziest or most unexpected taste in culture like you know the director of the british museum ends up being this massive love island fan honestly nobody but all of these things i think in any of the contexts like the most likely person is me as i remember like being at this dinner once when because my husband's really into american football even though he's british and he runs the, love that um, that's NFL amazing. UK Ravens fan site. Oh uh, my the, goodness. Tw the Twitter. Yeah, super into it. So, um, yeah, we went to the, the castle where the Ravens train and they treated it. It was that same thing again. They're like, the British are here. And I'm like, not British. Uh, but yeah, we got all these gift bags and stuff. It was cool. And Shane like recognized all the players. I don't know. Anyway, but we were watching on, we were watching on Netflix at Last Chance U. So there's oh. there's a Netflix show again crickets. There's always crickets with art world people when I say this. But so the first it got listen. Not I as watched good, I I watched trash TV. I like binge Top Chef. Like absolutely. That's, that's not like, really that's not that, that trashy. That's like delicious food, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Last chance isn't trashy. It's just like a very different. It's a very different habitus to art world people. So oh basically it's set in this like small um, community college that basically ends up being a lot of football players last chance to get back on the track to go to four-year university or even to get into the NFL. Wait, is this a reality and TV show or a... Um, it's a documentary. Fiction. Oh, documentary. Yeah, it's a, it's a documentary series, but like what... The young men go through yeah I was and the first series is the best like even if you only watched one and it actually relates to a lot of what we're talking about because the opening scene is this brawl on the football field between teams and you don't know why this happens and then the white coach is reaming out his team um, most of whom are from like very very difficult um, socioeconomic situations and 
the way that it builds up, like by the time you find out how he got to that point, I think it's just, I thought it was like just really masterful. Somehow we were talking about like community building or something. And I was like, this is a great example. And everyone's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not interested in football. And I was like, it's not about football. So I guess to wrap up, Zoe, um, you know, a lot of us are very focused on, on right now, understandably, but, you know, there are definitely lots of things to be excited and, and hopeful about. Um, so I'm curious, what are you looking forward to for, for the rest of the year or looking ahead to 2021? Oh, I was going to go even closer than that to July 3rd, because Hamilton is going to be streaming on Disney+. Plus. Wow. So I've got a date with my, with my family and my TV because we've never, we've never seen Hamilton. What? Oh, amazing. Yeah. Is your daughter, does she like the soundtrack? I feel like she a lot does. of kids. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, I once did a Soul Cycle class to the Hamilton's soundtrack. I, I did one of those too. Yes. Oh, it was see? everything. It was really hard because you had to resist the urge to sing along. That is so good. See, I think the only Broadway musical soundtrack I know I could sing all of the songs is Rent. Oh, Ooh. classic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I know that we went way over, but no, we really okay. appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Art from the Outside. As a friendly reminder, please subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Art from the Outside Podcast. Our sound engineer is Brett Fuchs, photography by Enrique Vega, and original music by Lola's Ghost. Stay well, be safe, and hope you'll join us for the next episode.